So this week, I've been thinking about something that happened to me in high school. And this is a story I don't think I've ever shared publicly, but in a way, it's a very significant part of my life story. I had just turned 16 years old, and it was the beginning of my junior year, represent, um, and my church youth group was going on a fall retreat. And I was not like the model Christian teenager. Uh, my faith was real, but it was turbulent, and my maturity was questionable at best. Um, but I went on this youth retreat, and during one of the talks, my youth pastor, whom some of you actually know, his name is Jason Malone, and he still pastors in Greenville, and I have told him this story because I thanked him years later. But the gist of his first talk on that retreat was this. Love God most so you can love others best. Love God most so you can love others best. What he meant was, if you want to have healthy relationships, you have to love God more than anyone or anything else. If you want to be your absolute best at loving others, you have to love God the most. It was a very simple message, and I remember virtually nothing else that was said that weekend, but somehow it got inside of me that day, or, or rather, the Holy Spirit got inside of me. And as a result of that simple teaching, I made a really big decision that altered the course of my life. I'm not gonna go into too many details about what that decision was, sorry, but I will say that it cost me a relationship that I cared about deeply. So in some ways, once I had made this decision, and I knew it was the right decision, but once I had made it, I wanted to undo it because the cost was greater than I expected it to be. In other words, I naively thought that putting God first would simply enhance all of my relationships and make everything in my life go more smoothly. But of course, as our gospel reading this morning tells us, often the exact opposite is true. Putting God first is right and it is good, but sometimes it comes with a sword. Sometimes it causes division that we don't intend or want. Sometimes our best attempt to love others feels to them like an affront. But what Jesus promises us in today's reading is that we don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to be afraid of the cost of following him because even if it costs us everything, even if it costs us our lives, following Jesus is the only way to really find our lives. The way of the cross is the path to resurrection. Whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it, he says. And the decision that I made on September 4th, 2004, as a junior in high school, in some ways cost me my life. At least it cost me my social life, which at 16 years old was pretty much the totality of life as I understood it. <laughs> and yet, looking back, I don't regret that decision a bit. I don't regret it because it put me on a path of learning how to love God most so I could love others best. I'm still on that journey, as we all are, but one thing that encourages me about this memory from high school is how Jesus' invitation comes to us exactly as we are, where we are. So whether you are 16 or 60, whether you would consider yourself a lifelong Christian or maybe just exploring faith, Jesus' call to you is the same. Take up your cross and follow me. There is a cost involved, but there's also a reward. So that's what I wanna talk more about this morning.
And we're just gonna walk through the text together and reflect on Jesus' words, what they meant now, or what they meant then and what they mean now. So starting in verse 34 of Matthew 10, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now the context here is Jesus' instruction to his disciples at the beginning of their first missionary journey. We've been in this section of Matthew for a couple of weeks now, and just last week, uh, we heard Jesus tell the disciples that their mission is going to be costly. That eventually, religious leaders will persecute them for this message, the message of the kingdom. In verse 17, he said, men will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. But here, Jesus takes the warning a step further. He says, faithfulness to me isn't only going to make you unpopular out there, it might also make you unpopular in your own homes. For I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now the word he uses for sword is important because it helps us to understand the personal nature of the conflict in view here. In Greek, it's machaira, which means short sword, like a dagger. And it's different from romphaya, the long sword. A romphaya connotes military battles, while machaira, the word in our passage, indicates interpersonal conflict. In other words, Jesus isn't talking here about religious imperialism. He's not suggesting or even condoning war in God's name. Rather, he's saying, following me might lead to conflict in your closest relationships. The people who can get close enough to you to hurt you or to feel hurt by you in a very personal, intimate way. This is one of the great paradoxes of the kingdom that angels can herald Jesus' birth in Luke chapter two and say famously, as we've heard many times, peace on earth, meaning Jesus' coming will resolve the conflict of nations. But then also here in Matthew 10, Jesus can say, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword, meaning his kingdom will create fault lines between individuals and families. These were very hard words for Jesus' disciples to hear because in the ancient world, family was everything. The family was the building block of society. So to be estranged from your family meant not only social ruin, but very possibly financial ruin as well. It was a big deal. So when Jesus says in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, he can very naturally talk about taking up your cross in the next verse because To a first century Jew, forfeiting family peace was pretty much as good as death. Now for some of you, these words hit home immediately. Some of you know the pain of lost or strained relationships in your family because of your fidelity to Jesus. Some of you, as you've gotten healthier and you've experienced more integration in your faith, you've taken some really hard steps to resist dysfunctional patterns of relating or maybe to set boundaries with your family and you're suffering the consequences of that. Some of you might not experience conflict in your family, but you very much feel this tension at work or in your social life. There might be people or even professional networks that you fear offending or displeasing and you're tempted to suppress your conscience or to make concessions 
for success at work. But still others of you, and sadly I think this has been true at times in church history, some of you have heard these words of Jesus as permission to diminish your family relationships in the name of God. Loving Jesus more than sons and daughters, these words at times have been used to justify child neglect, often by the very people who are modeling Jesus' love and attention to people outside of their families. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe growing up, your parents had a lot of time for God's work, but not a lot of time for you. And if that's the case, I want you to hear from the pulpit that that was wrong. Elsewhere, the New Testament makes very clear that fidelity to Jesus never justifies family neglect. In his letter to Timothy, Paul says, refusing to care for your own household is actually a form of denying the faith. So loving Jesus more than your family never means to neglect them. It never means being hard-hearted or flippant about our relationships with people. Rather, we love God most so we can love others best. But now back to that short sword because there's another layer to understanding this. As we walk in faithfulness to Jesus, loving him more than mother and father and sons and daughters and coworkers and friends and political parties, as we in fact learn from him how to love those people, how to do right by those relationships, we cannot gauge our success in light of how those people respond to us. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes you will love people well and they will still be offended by you. Just ask any parent who has tried to hold boundaries with their kids. Ask any person who has refused to enable abuse or addiction or who has refused to violate their conscience for someone else's convenience. Sometimes loving people is precisely what causes the offense. So what that means is loving people and pleasing people are not necessarily the same thing which is why we must apprentice Jesus to learn how to love well, how to love rightly. Because sometimes loving the person on the other side of you is going to feel to them, or maybe even to you, like a sword. Sometimes love feels like a cross. It can be very disorienting. So we can't go based on our feelings or others' feelings. But if you want to love well, keep your eyes on Jesus and let him define what true love for others looks like. And as he makes very clear in this passage, if you want to love well, get comfortable with the possibility of rejection, of loss. Remember the cost of discipleship, which sometimes means the people you most want to win over, the relationships that you most want to keep with you, you will lose. I'll tell you one other way this challenges me. As a professional Christian, you know, someone who can't exactly hide my faith because of the way I dress and what I do for a living, Um, but also as someone who likes to try to articulate my faith winsomely towards those who don't share it, sometimes I fall into a trap. And it's the trap of thinking this. If I can just represent Jesus well enough, if I can just be thoughtful or nuanced or gracious enough, then non-Christians will think well of me. Even if they don't agree with me, at least they'll see that I'm not naive or bigoted or whatever other negative stereotype I'm afraid of being associated with. I think this is a trap that many of us fall prey to 
of defining our success as Christians in terms of our approval rating. We're especially tempted towards this as a reaction to the equal and opposite error of adversarialism. That's the attitude in the church that says, we don't care what the heathens think. It is us versus the world, right? So bring it on. Maybe you've encountered that attitude as well. But we can react so strongly to that that then we begin to fear any sort of conflict or offense from those who don't share our faith. But the reality is, both of these approaches fall short of Jesus' call here. We're not called to be adversarial with the world or to appease the world. We're called to follow Jesus. Sometimes that will draw people to us. Other times, it will repel them. We're not in charge of that. We're in charge of our faithfulness, whatever the cost. So let's turn now briefly to Jesus' words about that cost, along with its reward that I mentioned earlier. Picking it up in verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me, Jesus said, is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said of this passage, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. These are hard words. But of course, again here, we encounter another great paradox of the kingdom. In Christ, death actually becomes the path to life. In Christ, we lose our lives to find them. It's the same paradox, the same mystery that we heard in our Romans passage this morning. Listen again to Paul's words. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the key to understanding the call to come and die. All this talk about taking up your cross and losing your life, it's not an end in itself. Rather, it's an invitation. Die so that you might live more fully and more freely than you ever have before. The Christian life isn't about self-denial for its own sake. The Christian life is about losing it all in order to gain Christ. It's about coming to know him as a prize so worthy that even our own lives pale in comparison. So let me give you just two things to keep in mind as you seek to do this, or at least as you consider it, because let's be honest, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you think your life is okay as it is, and it seems like too much of a risk at this point to give any more of it away to Jesus than you already have. Maybe you follow Jesus generally, but there are areas of your life that you'd rather hold on to for now, and I've got them too. We're all on a journey here. But here are two things to keep in mind on this journey, considering the call to take up your cross. First, in saying yes to Jesus, in following him, you will learn to love the reward more than you fear the cost. This doesn't mean it won't hurt when you face rejection or criticism or loss or conflict. It doesn't mean the cost of discipleship isn't real. It just means that the sting of death is nothing compared to the power of the resurrection. In Christ, what we gain is so much greater than what we lose. 
Earlier this week, I watched a movie about Eric Little with my boys. He was a runner, and I thought my boys would be interested in someone who was really fast in real life. And in 1924, Eric won a gold medal in the Paris Olympics, national hero for Scotland. But the same year that he won the Olympics, in 1924, Eric left his privileged life in Britain to serve as a missionary in China, where he died only 20 years later in a prisoner of war camp during World War II. And I was struck by the contrasts of his story, how he willingly traded fame for obscurity, how he chose to give up his life as an Olympian and die as a poor missionary. So I've been doing some reading about his life, and this is what he said to his fans about his decision to move to China. He said, it has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, I've had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I've run in Paris, and this race ends when God gives out the medals. Elsewhere, he said, many of us are missing something in life because we're after second best. As an Olympic gold medalist, Eric was uniquely equipped to illustrate this strange truth that even gaining the whole world is second best to losing your life in Christ. From the outside, this makes no sense. But from the inside, once you have died with Christ and you've been born again into his life, your affections begin to change. So as you follow Jesus, ask him to change your perspective. Expect him to and you will learn to love the reward more than you fear the cost. But second, remember this. First and foremost, before you take one single step of obedience to Jesus, you are already a recipient of the love that has lost all. Because the one who calls you to come and die has already died for you. In other words, brothers and sisters, the Christian life ultimately rests not on your ability to carry your cross, but on Jesus' ability to carry his. It's interesting to think that when Jesus first spoke these words to his disciples in Matthew 10, he had yet to tell them anything about his death. This is the first mention of the cross in the entire gospel. So for all the disciples knew, carrying the cross was just an object lesson about the difficulty of following the Messiah. But Jesus would go on to not just tell them about the cost of his ministry, but to show them. In loving God most, Jesus loved us best by losing his life for us. His people rejected him. His own disciples denied him. But he remained faithful to the Father's will, even unto death, in order to bring us life. So as we learn to walk the way of the cross, we are only following in his footsteps. We are apprenticing the one who showed us the way and who is still showing us the way. In every difficult relationship, in every painful season, in every little death we face on the journey to love. I wanna close with a story from a friend of mine that has remained, for me, a very powerful image of this of the fact that Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. This story is from a priest friend of mine who went through a very hard season of ministry a few years back. 
in which she encountered this short sword, this dagger that Jesus talks about in Matthew 10. And being faithful to her calling, she was hurt and rejected by some of the people closest to her, and it was almost unbearable for her to remain faithful in that season. And one night she was praying alone at church in the posture that Anglican clergy assume when we take our ordination vows. We lie flat on the floor in the shape of a cross. It's a posture of humility, of self-giving, and it's a posture of death. And as she was lying there with her arms outstretched, her face turned to one side on the floor. She imagined seeing Jesus lying there next to her, arms similarly outstretched, his fingers touching her fingers. And in her spirit, she heard him say, don't worry, I do this all the time. (laughs) Friends, Jesus loved God most so he could love us best. He lost his life for us, and he calls us to lose our lives for him. He will show you how. And in sharing his death, he will also share with you his resurrection. So don't be afraid. The reward is so much greater than the cost. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we thank you that you lost everything to win us. And we pray that you would share your life, your power, your love, your courage with us, your spirit, so that we can do the same that we would not be afraid to follow you in whatever ways you're calling us to, Lord, knowing the reward that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.